Now please rise, join me for script reading. Today's reading is John chapter 12, verse 20 to 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they come to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is God's word. And please keep your Bibles, if you have them, open to John chapter 12 as we pray together this morning. God, you are so good to your people. And we are mindful of that this morning. We are grateful uh, simply to have this opportunity to gather, uh, to, to sing together of your goodness, to be reminded of the hope we have in the gospel, and to learn from your word as we drink deeply from this passage in John chapter 12. We pray that you would be at work, that by your spirit we would know you more, that we would be reassured, and that we would, be, uh, that we would recognize uh, and have the strength to obey the call that you give to your church. God, we are your people, and you are our God, and it's by your grace that we can say that, and we do so in the name of your Son. Amen. In the novel, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, the main characters are a couple of boys who, at one point, run away from home and are assumed dead. The boys are determined, in the story, to live as pirates on an island. Uh, but, but, but before long, predictably, Homesickness sets in, and they decide to give it up. When they get back to their hometown, they discover that their own funeral is actually underway. And so they sneak into the back of the church to hear what's being said about them before they casually stroll down the aisle and surprise everyone. It's a scene that English teachers have been excited about since the book was first published in the 1870s, because just like the whole rest of the book, this scene is full of irony and literary tropes and symbolism. But I have always been interested in the notion that these boys listened to their own funeral sermon. As I read that part of the story, I can't help wondering what it would be like for any of us to sit in the back row and listen to our own funeral underway. It would be strange, obviously, to hear someone give a brief overview of my life. I can't help wondering what they would choose to highlight. And in the end, hearing my life described, hearing my own eulogy, would I call my life a success? Of course, that isn't what Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn were thinking about, but it is what I've always wondered about since I first read this story when I was in middle school. My perspective on what it would mean for my life to be a success is shaped by passages like the one we're looking at this morning from John chapter 12. Because, as Jesus will make very clear in this passage, a successful life, as Jesus understands it, is not necessarily what we may have in mind. 
This section of John's gospel, in this section of John's gospel, we discover that the purpose Jesus aims to fulfill in his life and ministry is very different than what people had assumed about him. He will not meet their goals for him or attain the victories that they wanted from him. And at the end of his life, he will be mocked repeatedly for what people saw as a failed life. They sarcastically dressed him as a king, complete with a a twisted crown of thorns before he was crucified. And once he was hanging on the cross, they laughed at him and mocked him again, laughing at the fact that he could save others, but he couldn't save himself. If Jesus had had a funeral like Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn did, it would have been awkward because in the eyes of the people, Jesus was an utter failure. The eulogy would have described how Jesus showed great potential, but in the end, he threw it all away. The last passage that we looked at from the book of John described a scene that has come to be known as the triumphal entry. It was Jesus' arrival into the city of Jerusalem where he was greeted by thousands and thousands of people who had traveled to the city to celebrate the Passover and who crowded the streets when they heard that he was coming in order to cheer for him. By their actions, they revealed that they had high hopes and high expectations for Jesus. They saw him as their liberator, the one who would throw off the burden of Roman oppression and the one who would lead Israel to prominence and distinction among the nations. They had seen Jesus do miracles. Most recently, they've seen him raise a dead man back to life. So they looked to him as the one with the power to make their dreams of life and prosperity come true. And as he arrived in the city, they cast their expectations on him, calling him the King of Israel. Now, John wants us to contrast that scene that we looked at a few weeks ago with the one we're looking at today, which opens with some foreigners looking for Jesus. The connection between these two passages is made clear, as John notes, that the people that we are about to meet in the opening of our passage are also in the city, they're also in Jerusalem for the Passover. And like the crowds that welcomed Jesus, this group has sought him out. But two things distinguish them from the crowds that we met in the triumphal entry. First, and most obviously, is the fact uh, that they are Greek. They are not ethnically Jewish, But they are in Jerusalem for the Passover. They aren't just sightseers who are on vacation in Jerusalem, as some scholars have theorized, because John specifically notes that they had come to worship at the feast, he says in verse 20. So when the Pharisees said in verse 19 that the world had gone after Jesus, they were right. They were talking about the sheer immensity of the crowds that were cheering for Jesus in the triumphal entry. But as we've seen already in this book, their words are more true than they realize. Already, God is drawing to himself people from outside the Jewish community who have come seeking his son. It's not the first time that we've seen this in Jesus' life, of course, but John is setting the stage for the way that Jesus will respond to this moment. Secondly, these Greek visitors are different from the crowds in their approach toward Jesus. Where the crowds saw Jesus as a means to an end, the Greeks who come to meet meet him simply want to see him for themselves. They've probably heard rumors about him, 
The commotion in the city as he arrived would have definitely caught their attention. And their request in verse 21 is simple. We wish to see Jesus. They come to Philip, perhaps because he is from a region that is familiar to him. His hometown of Bethsaida was not far from a region that was populated with Greek settlers. Additionally, Philip actually has a Greek name, so it was probably the natural choice for them to make. And their strategy, I think, makes sense, considering they are foreigners in Israel and are probably uncertain of whatever cultural customs would dictate uh, this sort of encounter and this type of request. So they talk to Philip, who goes to Andrew, and then together they go to Jesus to let him know that some Greek people are wanting to meet him. It's clear that John wants us and wants us to recognize that their actions contrast with the crowds who had cheered for Jesus in the last passage. Both groups are excited about Jesus. Both go out to meet him. But only one brings their expectations about Jesus with them. As we saw when we looked at the triumphal entry, these crowds will shortly be the ones who are demanding Jesus' execution when he fails to meet their hopes of what a Savior should be. By contrast, these Greeks do not reveal any assumptions about Jesus. They simply want to meet him. John doesn't record anything else about these Greek travelers. We don't know if they become Christ followers, or if they turned away from him, we don't even know if they got to meet him or not. In the details that are recorded for us here in John 12, they're kind of just left hanging. But those unanswered questions do not diminish from the point that's being made here. While the Jewish world, who had been waiting for a promised Messiah, is quickly turning against Jesus because he does not fit the mold that they envisioned for him, Gentiles Outsiders have begun to seek him out. Without the weight of expectations or demands that will cloud their ability to see him clearly and know him truly. Ultimately, those who come to Jesus with demands and expectations will be disappointed when he fails to deliver on them. By contrast, those who are willing to meet Jesus as he is will be stunned to discover that he is a greater king and a better savior than what they could have wished for. It's a critical distinction because our instinct, our human instinct is to take the good and holy promise of a divine savior and to make it fit our expectations for the salvation that we want. We let our preferences and our longings and our fears dictate what that savior should be how he should act and what he should do, rather than receiving Christ as he is. Like the people who crowded the streets of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, we look around our life and make Jesus into the victor over whatever is threatening our livelihood, our joy, or our priorities. We easily assume, just like they did, that God's love for us, embodied in his Son, must include a guarantee of long and prosperous lives, free of the type of suffering and oppression that they endured before he came. And so Jesus becomes, in our minds, the one who provides prosperity and healing and deliverance from illness. He becomes the affirming champion of whatever it is that we want and long for. 
And we make him into some sort of divine butler who serves at our pleasure and does not presume to dictate the terms of our lives or our relationship with him. And operating under that assumption, thinking of Jesus in that way, thinking about the salvation that he provides in that way, we will be disappointed and angry when he fails to deliver on our expectations. When we make Jesus into a different sort of Savior than who he is, when we make him into a Savior that promises prosperity and long life and his blessing on all of our choices and preferences, we will be dismayed by years like 2020, which relentlessly assault those assumptions. We'll be left wondering whether Jesus really loves us at all or whether or not he is actually able to save us at all. It's a dangerous assumption to make about him because it will inevitably turn us away from him, just like it did for the crowds that welcomed him in Jerusalem. But now these Greeks have come, seeking to meet Christ as he is and to know him as he reveals himself. And that's exactly what Jesus does in this passage. In his answer to their arrival, we see how Jesus is a greater king and a better savior than anyone would have wished for. As these visitors arrive seeking to meet with him, he answers, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This sentence is the center of this passage, and it establishes the foundation of Jesus' response, not only to these Greek travelers, but also to the triumphal entry itself. We want to see Jesus, they say. And Jesus answers, my glory is about to be revealed, but not in the way that you imagine. He refers to himself here as the Son of Man, which is the title that he most often uses for himself. It's a callback to parts of the Old Testament, specifically to passages like Daniel 7, 14, in which the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, which will endure for all time. Jesus is claiming that title and the dominion and authority and glory and kingdom that come with it, which I referred to in Daniel 7. He is the Son of Man who rules over the kingdom of God and who all the nations flock toward. That scene in Daniel 7 is a promise that God would send one to reign over and to restore the world itself with an everlasting dominion and strength. Jesus is that king. And so the people are not wrong to welcome him, and the Pharisees are not wrong to say that the world has gone after him. That's exactly what was promised in Daniel 7. They're not wrong to make that observation. The world is his kingdom, and he is already drawing people to himself from Greece and from every other tribe and tongue and nation. And now Jesus says, the hour has come. Jesus is telling everyone that the king who has who was promised in Daniel 7, is here, and that his eye is on his throne. It's essentially like he's saying, it's about to go down. But he does it using a phrase that we've seen already in the book of John. Up to this point, it's always been something yet to come. In chapter 2, Jesus told his mother, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 4, he told the Samaritan woman at the well that the hour is coming when people will worship God in spirit and truth. 
In chapter 7 and 8, when Jewish authorities try to have Jesus arrested, John records that no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. All through this book, there have been signals that the entire narrative is building toward something. Like a prince who was born into a royal family, who knows that one day he will wear the crown. He knows that day is coming. It is his destiny to rule, to sit on the throne, and one day the hour will come. His hour will come when he will ascend to the seat of power itself. Of course, Jesus is not a prince awaiting the day that he becomes king. He already is the king. But evidently, his whole life and ministry have been building toward a moment that is now here when he will be glorified, when he will receive his crown and rise to his throne. For Jesus, the hour has been something in the future until now. Beginning right now, right here in chapter 12, verse 23, and for the rest of the book of John, the hour has come. In chapters 13 and 17, Jesus will remind us that the hour, his hour, is here. Hearing that, hearing that his hour has come, and remembering all the, all the history and hope and promise associated with the title the Son of Man, hearing that the, the, the hour for the Son of Man has come, the disciples and anyone else who might have been present probably had certain images in their minds. They'd just seen thousands of people cheering for Jesus as he entered the capital city. Like other kings, he had been welcomed with pomp and circumstance. And perhaps now they are thinking Jesus will do as other kings have done. He will go to the, to the palace for an official coronation where he will receive even more acclaim and a crown and a throne. It's everything that the crowds expected and wanted Jesus to do because it served their own interests. The announcement that the time had come for him to be glorified was music to their ears. But Jesus, evidently anticipating their assumptions, says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The anticipation that has been mounting for the whole book of John has reached its pinnacle as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And everyone present and everyone reading this book is waiting to see the magnificent vision of glory that is about to be revealed. And then Jesus says this, and suddenly everything changes because it's not what they were expecting him to say. But this is how he explains what it will mean, what it will mean for him to be glorified to fulfill the promise of the Son of Man and what exactly he means when he says that his hour has come. He uses an agricultural metaphor to make this point. A grain of wheat by itself is just a tiny capsule of potential. It, it doesn't accomplish anything sitting on a counter. But buried in the ground where it decays and dies, to use Jesus' language, it sprouts and it produces fruit. In order to produce that fruit, it must die. This is the mission of God's Son, the Son of Man himself, to die and to bear the fruit of salvation. This is how the Son of Man receives his kingdom, by dying for its people who, who come to him from every nation. 
And this is how he secures his dominion forever, by emerging victorious from the grave itself. What no one expected, and what the crowds who had welcomed Jesus would be disappointed to hear, is that Jesus is the king who is glorified by dying for his people. He is the king, the son of man, who receives dominion and glory and a kingdom and the affection of the nations by giving his life for them. This is what Jesus has in mind as he approaches the city. For his whole life, the cross has been on the horizon. It has always been the hour that has not yet come. It has been looming there, casting a shadow over every word, every miracle, and every day of his life. Like a grain of wheat, he must die, and he knows it, in order to bear the fruit that he came to produce. Jesus has known this, and he has been moving toward it each and every day of his life and ministry. And as he does so, he is looking beyond it to the joy and the glory that await him on the other side of the cross. The writer of the the book of Hebrews explained that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame. Throughout his life and ministry, Jesus has been anticipating this hour, knowing that it would come, when he would be unjustly condemned and when he would receive in our place the wrath of God against our sin. And he never wavered. Because beyond the cross, he knew that there was something good and glorious and joyful. So Jesus goes to the cross and endures the agony and the injustice of his death. Receives the wrath of his father, though he never committed any sin himself. And he does it all because of the joy set before him. The joy, that joy, his joy was to return to glory, to his heavenly throne and his seat at the right hand of his father, and to victory over death itself. And we understand from this passage here in John 12 that that joy also involves you and me. He's the seed that dies for the joy on the other side of the cross, the joy that includes the lives of those who are saved by his sacrificial death. Jesus is the king of glory whose glory is revealed by dying for his people. He is the good and gracious king who humbles himself for the lives of his subjects, becoming the servant of all. That is his glory, the glory that is revealed in this hour, and it is our good. That is the good news of the gospel. It is better, it is better than if Jesus had come to overthrow the Roman Empire and give the Jewish people their political freedom that they so longed for. Better even than if he had come to grant us every wish that we may have for earthly blessing. Better than if he had spared us the many trials of the year that we are in. Or if he had stopped you or someone you love from getting sick. Or if he had ensured that you would never lose a job or find yourself wishing that things had gone differently. It is better It is better than if he were the Savior that people wanted and expected him to be. Better, because by his death we have life forever, as he promises in verse 25. What Christ came to accomplish and the path to glory that he came to walk is better than what people wanted 
or could have wished that God would provide because it is forever. And that truth shapes the lives of those who belong to him. Immediately in this text, Jesus shifts from describing his own intention to go to the cross, his his own intention to be the seed of wheat that falls to the ground and dies in order to produce fruit. He immediately shifts from his description of his intentions to his expectation that his followers will go and do likewise. Because there is an essential relationship between the willingness of Christ to endure affliction for his people and their call to do likewise. We see that same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, when Peter writes that if you do good and suffer for it, you in, and you endure, this is a, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter, who wrote those words, And who was there in the room as the events of John chapter 12 unfold and heard Jesus' words firsthand, understands that the path to glory that Jesus walks is the same path for those who follow him. It is the call to imitate Christ's determination to forego self-interest in this world for the joy that is set before us in eternity to come. One scholar writing on this passage says, Jesus' design for your salvation is also his design for your imitation. And he, he, Jesus, uses strong language to make this point. It says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Loving your life is the phrase that Jesus uses to characterize the crowds who had been cheering for him as he came into the city. They prioritized their own well-being. They made their freedoms, their rights, and their prosperity the top priority. That is what Jesus means when he talks about loving your life, to choose it over everything else. But how are we to take his instruction to to hate our lives? (laughs) It's not the quote from Jesus that most people have on their coffee mugs. You don't see that printed on a lot of Christian t-shirts. We can safely say, I think, that Jesus is not saying that life itself is to be hated. I mean, he is the one who, after all, literally just raised someone from the dead. So that would be a strange thing for him to do if, if, you know, he's instructing us to hate life itself. Additionally, I think two observations can help us grasp Jesus's meaning. First, he adds the phrase, in this world. He's making a distinction between the lives that we have here and now and the eternal life that we receive in him. Secondly, ancient Semitic use of the word hate is a little different than the way that we often use it. It has to do with absolute preference. It's the same word that Genesis 29 uses to describe Jacob's relationship with Leah and Rachel. He didn't hate Leah, even though that's the word that we have in our English Bibles in the same sense. He didn't hate Leah in the same sense that we might have in mind when we use that word, but he certainly did prefer Rachel over Leah. It's the same word that Jesus himself uses in Luke 14 when he said that anyone who comes to him but does not hate his family is not able to be his disciple. Jesus, of course, loved his family, and demonstrates that uh, love for family is an important 
thing for all the people who follow him. When one of his 12 disciples was desperately worried about his sick mother-in-law, Luke records that the disciples asked Jesus to do something to help her. He stood very close to her and ordered the sickness to go away, and the sickness left her. Obviously, obviously, Jesus is not teaching his followers to hate their families in the, in the way that we usually use the word hate. The way that we use that word is to describe things that we wish didn't exist, like when I say, I hate traffic, or I hate blue cheese, because it would be, but this world would be better if those things didn't exist. But we know, obviously, that that is not what Jesus is suggesting. Instead, the radical notion that Jesus will not pursue his own self-interest and save himself from the cross is what it looks like to hate life in this world. For the people who had cheered for him as he came into the city, this is not the thing that they wanted him to say. For them, the goal, the goal, was throwing off Roman oppression, being free and respected and unencumbered. They wanted life and comfort. And Jesus is saying to them and to us that in order to have them forever, you have to let them go now. Like Jesus himself, whose hour had come, and who knows that his own crucifixion and death are only days away, he bids us to choose eternal joy in lieu of earthly prospering. It is a hard, a hard instruction. There is no question. It's not what we want to hear. Like the people who had suffered under Roman occupation, whose lives had been oppressed, we want Jesus to ride in on a white horse and give us all the things that we wish for. We want him to be the savior that we design for ourselves. And we want him to be the one who makes our lives in this world everything that we wish they were. It is hard. No question, Jesus' words here are hard. But they are eternally good. That is the hope of Jesus' final words in this paragraph. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Nowhere on any page of your Bible does Jesus promise that following him will be easy. Here, he describes it as service, labor, and toil. Because he is the Son of Man who came himself not to be served, but to serve, according to Mark 9.45. And we are called to follow him in the path that he walks. And where he goes, we go after him, which means that we go to the cross behind him. We hate our lives in this world by choosing, not simply withstanding, but choosing to go where he goes, to serve as he serves, and to love sacrificially as he does. But that also means we will follow him beyond the cross to the joy set before us, there. It is a hard command, but it is eternally good. Church history is full of examples of godly people who took this hard command to heart and who walked in the footsteps of Christ on the path to glory. George Mueller was a German missionary in England in the 1800s. Perhaps you've heard me mention him before. 
During his years living in England, he cared for over 10,000 orphans who were living on the streets. He opened over 100 schools for them and lived in near poverty himself in order to provide for the kids who depended on him. At one point, a critic of his said that he was actually elevating the poor out of what others considered their natural station in life, an observation which was, which was evidently intended as a stinging rebuke against Mueller. He was a man of deep Christian conviction and who was passionate about prayer. Over and over again, as supplies ran low in the orphanages that he oversaw, or there were needs that no one knew how to meet, he turned toward God in prayer and witnessed how God provided for these kids. And when a friend asked him how and why he did all of this, he answered, there was a day when I died. Died to myself, to my opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, to its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of my brethren or friends, and since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. He willingly laid aside his own self-interest in, in, in this life, knowing that what we have in Christ, what we receive in Christ is greater and of more eternal worth. Like Christ, Mueller was a grain of wheat that died to self-interest in order to produce fruit in the lives of thousands of orphans throughout England. Last week, we concluded our annual missions conference, which is always a powerful reminder to me of these things. We get, to, we get the chance every year to hear from missionaries who are serving around the world. Each of them, every single one of them, have chosen to forego certain things in life in order to obey God's call in their lives. Some of them willingly serve in places that put their lives at risk every day. Because they choose, like George Mueller and like Christ himself, to look beyond the hardships that they endure here along the path that leads to glory. Unlike Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, most of us will not be around to hear our own funeral sermon. I won't hear my own eulogy, though I know it will probably be unremarkable in the world's eyes. Because Christ does not call us to glory in this world. He calls us to walk along with him on the path to glory, to the joy that is set before us. It's a path that demands that we lay aside the longings of this life and this world, longings for wealth and prosperity and achievement and comfort and unfailing health in order to pursue, like Christ did, the blessing and salvation of others. For the Christian, the question, what does it mean for a life to be successful, has a different answer than we would have given before we met Christ. Seeing him who willingly chose to walk to the cross and to give his life for those who trust in him, our definition of success changes at a fundamental level. Rather than giving our lives to the pursuit of comfort and prosperity, a Christian life that is well-lived follows this Christ-like pattern. Serve, endure. Serve, endure. Die. Glory forever. It will not be impressive to the world. It will not win us glory or fame. Unlike George Mueller, the vast majority of Christians throughout history are forgotten. There will not be monuments built in their honor. 
They are, by all worldly measures, unremarkable. Their lives are characterized by charity, kindness to neighbors, service, humility, and gentleness. Hardly the sort of qualities that win the acclaim and honor of those around us. To many, our lives will look like the failure of unrealized potential. But we do not long for the honor of this world. Instead, like Christ, we look beyond it along the path that leads to glory where God honors his people. And we resolve to live humbly and sacrificially and like Christ who himself willingly chose to forego honor in this world, choosing the cross instead as the grain of wheat that dies to bear the fruit of salvation. Let's pray together. God, as we reflect on um, this passage from John 12, as we hear these words from Jesus, as we reflect on the gospel, Lord, humble us. Make us into the likeness of your Son. Lead us in living with our eyes set on the joy that is to come and mold our hearts to willingly give what we have in the pursuit of salvation and life for our neighbors. Lord, bring the gospel to bear on our hearts today. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen.